This is the The Imagination Podcast, a podcast about God, faith, and faithful imagination in the 21st century. And I'm your host, Phil Odd. So, how many of you remember when people used to post blog roles? When blogging was popular, people used to post other blogs that they recommended on their own blog to support thoughtful people doing great work. Well, over the next few episodes, I want to do a pod roll, if you will, and let you know about some good people doing good work that I think you might benefit from. This week, I want to let you know about something that many of you may already know about called Open Table. What is Open Table? Well, as the folks at Open Table put it, it is a welcoming space to learn and be refreshed as we journey together in a different narrative that God revealed in Jesus is better than we ever imagined. Open Table often hosts conferences. They have one coming up in February, as well as courses. And I have a link in the show notes where you can find out more. But get this, they're hosting a free online Advent series called The Waiting is the Hardest Part on November 28th, December 5th, 12th, and 19th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can watch the live stream or the playback on the Open Table Conference Facebook page. Check out the show notes for the links. Y'all, this thing is led by Chris Green, Julie Canlis, Eden, and Bradley Jersak. They're Canadian, so bonus points. Kenneth Tanner and John McMurray. Stellar crew. Anyway, I heard about this and thought you might want to know. Okay, so let's get to the episode. This is the second part of my interview with pastor theologian Andrew Ray Williams about his brilliant new book, Washed in the Spirit, Toward a Pentecostal Theology of Water Baptism. Andrew's doing amazing work and moving the ball forward in terms of Pentecostal thought and practice, but also in terms of ecumenical dialogue. I hope you enjoy this conversation. You know, you had also talked about how Pentecostals ought to consider abandoning representative language for participatory language, and that if baptism is sharing and partaking in the very life of Christ, then symbolic language does not get to the heart of what God is up to in baptism. God is active in baptism. So what do you mean by this? How should we talk when we talk about baptism? Pentecostals are right about this. Baptism is symbolic. The where we go wrong is saying it's merely symbolic. Right, right. Of course, baptism is symbolic, right? Yeah. Uh, we see that in scripture, but it is not merely symbolic. There is something more. And so by using only symbolic language at the expense of participatory language, meaning we're only talking terms of what this represents or signifies and not that what this signifies, this right actually does mm. and is actually bringing us into a connection and an encounter with God, I think we're we're deeply mistaken on, on that. And of course, we're mistaken in one sense, because as I've already said, I think we intuitively kind of know this. I think it's our doctrinal language we're trying to explicitly say what it means. I think there's part of it is we don't really know how to speak of this without seeming like we're Catholic or Orthodox. I, I think there still is that fear. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think it is symbolic, but I think we need to also use participatory language when we're explaining or giving testimony to uh, what we actually believe is right about baptism. Let's talk about 
the sacraments. I, I probably should have started here because I think so much of the thinking and even the problems are rooted in just kind of a sacramental view or an incorrect sacramental view. So you call, for example, Pentecostals to embrace a sacramental view of water baptism that emphasizes the Spirit's presence in and through the rite. Uh, but you're calling us to carefully consider both what we mean and how we speak of sacraments. So let's break this up a little bit. So I guess first I'll ask, you know, one of your end notes, you define a sacrament as referring to a repeatable instituted form of the gospel that mediates the mystery and reality of divine encounter. There's a lot packed into that sentence for sure. So yes. for those who are not used to talking about sacramentality, could you break that down a little bit for us. What do you mean when you talk about the sacrament? Absolutely. Sacrament language is so loaded, isn't it? I was even talking to some pastor friends about the language sacrament and ordinance. And I'm a Foursquare, uh, and we, we referenced Amy, Simba McPherson earlier. Actually, I think this kind of confusion about what word to use actually start from the beginning. Amy used both words. <laughs> she used sacrament sometimes and ordinance and others. And so it's really convoluted in terms of how we understand it. That's one of the reasons that when I'm talking and using kind of the illustration of the word of rites or ritual, I almost think that's more helpful. Hmm. And that's why I call baptism a rite in general, because I think yeah. a sacrament, and particularly the sacrament of water baptism, is a rite, uh, meaning that it's something symbolic and representational, but also the act of participating in that rite does what it signifies. Mm. It accomplishes something more than just only representing. So whatever it represents, it accomplishes. Okay. And so I think that, in meaning it has efficacy because God is involved in doing it. So for instance, does water do anything in baptism? Absolutely not. But it's the means by which God has chosen to do some things, mm. right? So water is not magical, but yeah. water, because of God's choice and doing it this way, is what mediates God's presence to us and mm. begins to enact some parts of what God wants to do. So you quote John Christopher Thomas, who who talks about the need to reclaim and appropriate the sacraments for a tradition that has largely been a bit uncertain about them and their place in the community's worship, right? So I think that may be one of the things that has made Pentecostals wary of embracing this is certain misunderstandings. I think one in which you just dealt with, is it the water? Um, I, but I think a big thing here is, is how many perceive forgiveness to be at work or how they perceive sacramentalists in believing that forgiveness is at work. So how would you talk about this? You know, Gordon um, Smith, who's here in the city, he talks about in baptism, we receive the forgiveness of sins, not the removal of sin. And so there's a certain type of thing happening here that I think you're really careful with. And I, I thought it was such a great clarifying point for Pentecostals. So how would you, if you're breaking down some of the common barriers for Pentecostals, this being a key one, how would you speak about this as, as people who are approaching it with kind of that, that wariness? That's great. And this is actually right down my alley, man. I'm, when I'm talking to ordinary people mm. um, that are just trying to get their heads around, you know, how do we understand forgiveness of sins? How is it tied to baptism? Is, is it not at all? So, yeah, I think that there is a lot of misunderstanding, but I think we need to actually look at sort of the scaffolding 
at which we've sort of constructed some of these arguments and mm. some of the ways we've actually constructed some of these dichotomies, right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. if we approach the whole idea about conversion and understand it's like decisionism, this mm. I make a decision and, and my decision is ultimately what saves me, right? <laughs> of course, theologically, that's totally off. But we have this idea that salvation is something that has already happened in my past. Like I was saved on this day when I said the prayer or whatever, but see, scripture doesn't talk that way at all. Yeah. Scripture talks about salvation in terms of something that is past, present, and future. It's something that has happened. It's something that is happening. And it's something that we will gain and will happen to us in the end. Mm. And so when we think about baptism and we read like Peter say, baptism saves you, we can't just say, no, that's not true. Right? We have to say, <laughs> no, baptism actually does save us. The question is, how do we understand baptism saving us? And of course, mm. baptism has always been understood as connected to the forgiveness of sin, the washing of the way. You know, I think that if you think about, and this is not something really get in the book, but even the typology, if you, in the Old Testament, we find Noah and um, connected to baptism. We talk about the Red Sea, connected, all these water events yes. are connected in a sense to this New Testament rite. And usually they have to do with salvation. Mm. And so we have to understand that a part of being on the via salutis, the journey towards salvation, as we have experienced it, are experienced it, and will experience it, Baptism is a very important key piece within that whole process of salvation. And so in a sense, it does save you. Is it mechanical? And that's like, yeah, you're baptized. You need nothing else. And you don't need your, no, uh, no, no, nobody even believes that. I, I don't know any tradition that actually believes that, right? Maybe caricatures say that some do, but nobody actually believes that. Right. So I think that we have to understand the whole conversation about conversion in a very different light. Yeah. So what you're saying here is that, um, some of these youth speakers who tell people that if they don't have their conversion date written down, they have to do it all again. <laughs> well, I'm just going to tell you, I'm in trouble if that's the case, because I do not know the day. I grew up and it happened sometime. But, you know, I mean, if you think about it, too, like even my own story, it's kind of like I can think of key moments, hmm. but they certainly don't contain all that God has and is doing. Right. And yes. that is the rich, multivariant kind of complex of salvation in our lives. Well, it's interesting here. You talk about the decisionism. And I actually think that this is a, a huge issue because you still have so many people in particular contexts where this is the thing. And I think it's simultaneously can be special to people like, man, there was a particular time I remember God did a unique thing in my life. And, and to speak of that, I think is beautiful, but it can also be condemning in other ways. But it's strange to me that that and not like, hey, do you remember when you were baptized becomes yeah. the question, right? Oftentimes, I think when we're arriving at the wrong answers, it's because we're still not even asking maybe the right questions. No, that's exactly right. And I, I think that one thing that you're saying is really point, I just like to emphasize it in terms of the fact that if we are going to trust in, in the, the day that we decided what happens when we no longer trust ourselves mm. and we no longer trust our past or our quote unquote formal selves, right? Yes. That's a big issue, right? And so, of course, we have to go back, not merely to something subjective, 
but something objective that what actually has been declared about us that we can trust in, right? And that's the faith part. We can believe and trust in what God has actually done, Mm. both in terms of how he's wooed us and we're saying yes to his yes of us, but also of what he said to us in baptism as well. And so, yeah, I think you're exactly right. We can't merely trust in what we've said to be true about us, but something that God has actually said about us. And I think there's something beautiful about memory here too. More and more we're realizing, well, I can't trust my own memories really even. Mm, but the yeah. communal memory, um, which informs the present, you know, there's there's something to be said about the communal memory of what's happening here, a decision or the vocational call, right? But taking place within the context of a community. So I didn't write this down, but let's let's talk about the community for a second and, and the role of the community. I tweeted something about maybe rebaptism or something. I'll, I'll ask about that in a minute, but where this all takes place becomes important and with whom? And they laughed and said, yeah, unless you're like, in the Jordan, then apparently all rules go out the window. But um, <laughs> let's talk about this this communal aspect. What role does the community play in baptism? Yeah, I, what you talk about with memory is so important. And if you think about it, one powerful thing about being within the community of Christ is the support that it lends itself to. And I think about marriage. How many of us went into marriage really knowing what in the world we were doing. (laughs) I certainly did not. And I'm still figuring it out. And I think the same thing is sort of with the Christian life, right? When we begin to live the Christian life and and surely if our baptism is only wrapped up in what we're doing, we're like, what did I get myself into? How can Mm -hmm. I even trust that I even made the right decision? But there's a sense where the community comes like, hey, we can come alongside and provide the faith with you, even if you don't know what you're doing. We know what it involves, and we can provide that faith. And we can also provide the faith on the other side. Baptism is paired with faith, of course. The end result always has to be our own personal faith paired with what God has done. But it also is not somehow divorced from the faith of the community. Uh, The faith of the community is what not only helps bring us to baptism, but helps us live our baptism. Mm. And I think it's incredibly significant to have uh, the communal memory and the communal encouragement of what it means to live the baptized life. So I think all of this leads us pretty well into kind of where this conversation initiated. So I was on Twitter and tweeted something to the effect that I think infant baptism is a deeply Pentecostal practice and Pentecostals just don't realize it yet, to which somebody said, I thought you were a Pentecostal. (laughs) Surely a Pentecostal couldn't tweet there. (laughs) And Chris Green connected us via that tweet. And so here we are. So let's talk a little bit about infant baptism, you know, particularly coming off of you talking about baptism does something in us. It's this performative act. This is something that Pentecostals have quite opposed historically, and I would say generally now. I was interested in your research, though, at one point that in 1945, the International Pentecostal Holiness Church did affirm the choice of either child dedication or baptism. But I guess maybe it stood up to me because that is so rare in our circle. So given your research and your conclusions that you've reached, the journeys that you're on, where are you at in terms of infant baptism? You know, How did you arrive there? Is this a good thing for Pentecostals? 
Phil, you're such a close reader, which is so helpful for this conversation, <laughs> but you're exactly right in the fact that you noted that IPHC, the International Pentecostal Holiness Church, historically, from the very beginning of their founding, provided the option for infant baptism or believer's baptism. Hmm. And if I can just go down like a little bit of a historical rabbit trail Let's just for it. a second. Let's go. Okay. I, I think what was so interesting about the process of, of discovering this is the fact that first, Pentecostal Holiness churches never overturned this. Hmm. They could still baptize an infant. Today. What ended up happening is they began to adjust this language, and I try to document it within the various manuals they put out. And slowly by slowly, they begin to move and take things out, add things to, and by the end of it, it's unrecognizable. And they started making theological decisions without maybe even realizing it. Hmm. Perhaps it was more pragmatic reasons. Yeah. I don't know. But I think that really from the Pentecost holiness denomination, it really came because of how much they were tied to Methodist and really the Wesleyan the holiness bent that they had and really the historical movement that preceded Pentecostalism. So there is some kind of uh, historical precedent for at least considering infant baptism. But what we don't have, even in any really early historic literature, is some kind of theological reflection about it. Mm. And so what I'm trying to provide is at least some. And what I kind of landed on for pragmatic reasons, because I want it to be ecumenical, but also to keep my Pentecostal construction intact, what I argued for is that really baptism of infants and baptism of believers, each actually together kind of express the full meaning of baptism. Mm. And what I mean by that, while infant baptism testifies to God's gracious initiative and his believer's baptism testifies to the deep connection, you know, with personal acceptance and faith, but really both forms together kind of get this dynamic that we talked earlier of the human divine interaction within baptism. And in some ways, because of the moment at which we find ourselves denominationally, post-denominational, and very ecumenical, whether we like it or not, kind of landscape we're in, I actually am advocating for both to be held up in the community because they both testify to at least one side. Now, I think that with infant baptism, a robust confirmation can express the human agency side of really owning what God has actually said. And of course, infant dedication for many Pentecostals serves as the enabling grace. But again, how much does it actually? I don't know. We probably ought to firm that up as well. So I'm trying to bring an ecumenical approachment of, of how can we begin to, to see both of these things theologically in terms of complementary. And so that's kind of somewhat of somewhat of idea. So super practically, you know, we get to the end of this phenomenal research, just fascinating stuff. I think the ultimate question for me, at least, is what does it look like, right? So like, yeah. how do you imagine the Pentecostal liturgy? What should a baptismal service look like? And maybe what shouldn't a baptismal service look like? Like one of the things you had said is one crucial step in uh, mutual recognition that you were just talking about is for Pentecostals to discontinue rebaptisms. And so, you know, kind of talk to us about that a little bit. I loved what you wrote there on kind of an alternative practice to that, expressing the probably good heart behind people asking that. But yeah, how does the service look? Yeah, this is really, really a good question. 
Um, and something I've kind of tried to figure out as I've gone. That's the interesting thing about pastoring while you're doing this kind of research. <laughs> yeah. Um, you can't bracket out the praxis, <laughs> whether you like to or not. I think that when it comes to rebaptism, I guess I'll talk about that quickly first. Baptism means beginning. And so thus, there is truly a place and a time for baptism and it is not, I believe, repeatable. I think that in terms of New Testament evidence, we don't have any New Testament evidence of a rebaptism. I think the only one that could be talked about within Acts, maybe Acts 19. But of course, if you look at that text more closely, these disciples never received Christian baptism. They only received John's baptism of repentance, which of course is not Christian baptism. Hmm. And of course, what we see is Acts 19 is they were baptized. I said, oh, you were baptized, but you never received a spirit. So what do they do? They get him to speak in tongues? No, they baptize him, right? Hmm. They baptize hmm. these believers and they receive the spirit. And so they experience Christian baptism. So I don't think there's any precedent for rebaptism. I understand the pastoral desire and even the sincerity of people to say, you know, I... I really feel like I'd like to rededicate or I kind of went away from the Lord. But I think the, the power in saying, yeah, but is this just you trusting in your decision or is it something trusting in God's grace? And now we just need to creep back to our baptism and say yes about what God said about me. Yeah. And so I think an alternative practice that I actually do is for those people who would like to be rebaptized, I always suggest foot washing. Mm. which in the 21st century seems very awkward because mm. none of us really like touching each other's feet, right? But I think it could be very beautiful, even within a baptism service, to have baptism, perhaps have some worship and wash people's feet mm. afterwards as worship is going on, as an act of worship, as an act of a cleansing rite in terms of, yeah, maybe you've strayed off from your baptism and got your feet dirty in the sin of the world, but come back and allow Jesus to mediate his grace to you. So yeah, yeah, go ahead. Just to clarify here, to make this abundantly clear for people listening, when we're talking rebaptism, we're not simply talking about a person who was baptized in their teenage years, got their feet dirty, as you said, but also the person who was baptized as an infant and and then says, well, I didn't really even know anything. Like this is applicable to that person as well, right? In in your yes, theology. thank you, Phil. Yes, I th and the reason is because I believe that infant baptism is actually a baptism. Yes. If you don't believe it's a real baptism, then of course you'd have to actually baptize it. But I believe infant baptism is a real baptism, and so I I don't think we need to. Re I mean, I for instance, I know like here's a here's a good theological giant, Karl Bart. He was baptized as an infant, and then later. Um, I disagree with him as a view in baptism, but he ended up saying, no, we really shouldn't baptize infants at all. Hmm. Um, believers' baptism should be the norm. But he still didn't get rebaptized. Hmm. And so what I tell people, I actually had this conversation not long ago, is, okay, you've been baptized and it's an infant, and you are now desire. Wow, how incredible that God has been with you all this time. And perhaps, what does this say? How, do, how can we reinterpret our past? Rather, here's the story people say. I was lost until now, mm. right? I was lost until now. That thing that happened to me, it didn't mean a thing to me. But that's the whole point, isn't it? <laughs> yes. That perhaps now we're actually finally recognizing the grace, the prevenient grace of God in our lives, that perhaps he was stirring and working in long ago. Well, isn't that deeply Pentecostal, right? Like 
Yes, I would think so. It was the work of the spirit who kept you all these years. If it's mere symbolism, then I understand it. But if it is a, a work of God's grace in our lives, you know, I've had great friends who say, man, I don't know. I love Jamie Smith's work or whatever on kind of the formative nature of this. But, you know, I grew up in that tradition and I'm like, but it worked because here you are. And they're like, oh, yeah, okay, I guess. But there's a beautiful thing there of that recognition, even the ability to go back and say, well, look where I'm at now. I'm like, of course you are. You were baptized, right? And this is where for me, it's actually congruent with Pentecostalism. Of, Of all people who believe in the working of the spirit, why wouldn't we understand that. So I'm going to pick that up, this idea of foot washing as the alternative. And I encourage listeners who are pastors, or maybe you're not a pastor and you've been considering this, maybe suggest to your pastor instead of a rebaptism, a foot washing. I think this is amazing. I guess, is there anything else about the service that you would say before we sign off? Yeah, I, I think that in terms of practical steps, something that I often do is I don't think we need to over-intellectualize it. So the last thing I want to do right before I baptize someone is give a giant homily, like right after I've already preached or whatever, um, on the meaning of baptism. Ultimately, we just need to perform it. But we do need understanding that actually I always reference Jesus' baptism. And I always reference what we should expect. We expect the Spirit to come. Mm. And why would we not? Why would we not expect the Holy Spirit to be here with us and particularly on this person that we're going to be baptizing? You know, in my book, there's a little paragraph where I kind of sketch out a suggested kind of liturgy for for baptism. And I guess I would want to end on that. I really think that there is a need for Pentecostal churches, Pentecostal denominations to have a written liturgy for the sacraments. Mm. Now, for some, this may seem like anti-Pentecostal because it's not spontaneous or it's not, you know, improvisational. But I think that actually, if you look historically, you know, let's go back to Amy. Amy keeps seeming a talking point, but Amy, um, some McPherson, that is, actually had baptismal vows that they would read in the tank Mm. uh, and that she would read over them. And so this isn't something that is completely foreign to our tradition. It's just something that I think that we need to recover and expand. Yeah. And the reason that is, is because ultimately everyone is sort of left to do it on its own terms, thus communicating through the practice. You mentioned James Smith, through the practice, communicating its meaning in all, all these different ways. Yeah. And so I still think there can be improvisational kind of script improvisation. I mean, isn't that what we do as pastors? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm Pentecost pastor, right? So it's not as if my whole service is a free for all, my goodness. But there are moments where at least I'm trying to be sensitive to spirit. And I think the same thing can be within the liturgy that can kind of help calm some of the Pentecostal nerves. Like, you know, something I often do is just after we baptize someone, often just pray for a prophetic word. I think there's still room, even if we allow there to be a more formal way we do baptisms, more, and I think, intentional way we do baptisms. Thanks for your work. And, you know, we need more pastor theologians in the world and you're a gift to the church and to the academy. And this conversation was a gift as well. So, Andrew, thank you for taking the time to do this. And thanks for 
such great and thorough work and helping us Pentecostals and I, I think others who are part of the ecumenical conversation to move forward in beautiful ways. Thank you. Thank you, Phil. It's a pleasure. All right, y'all, that wraps my interview with Andrew Ray Williams. Be sure to check out his book, Washed in the Spirit, and be sure to stay tuned. We have some new episodes coming for you real quick. See you next week. Grace and peace.